I just have been kind of um, thinking a lot this year, um, and just on the Lord's kindness and his patience with us as his children, um, I just am constantly reminded of my need for grace (laughs) and mercy, just like you. So, um, and I was thinking in relation to um, all the things that we've learned this year, um, and and even implementing the three disciplines that are here, um, I think this can be sometimes overwhelming. And maybe even feel a little bit burdensome, like, wow, there's just so much to do and um, so many important tasks that God has given to us. And um, yet he says he doesn't want that these are burdensome to us. So how how can we do that? How can we do that without um, looking to the right and the left and imagining how someone else's life is going and then trying to model our lives somehow after that and even... Um, all the examples that we have in scripture to feel the weight of um, all of these ways that um, people have implemented scripture in their own life and then to feel like we are adequately or woefully inadequate. Um, So I kind of was hoping to refocus our attention a little bit today um, and to think about what it looks like to daily and deliberately walk by faith. because this is the life that's commended in scripture. Uh, to emulate faith, not to emulate specific detail of people's lives. Um, <clears throat> and, and that is the, the simple and straightforward aim of scripture, is to walk by faith. Um, and if you're like me, this is an incredibly familiar term. <laughs> We've all heard the word, faith, uh, for as long as we've probably been in the church. And Um, But this kind of can so easily remain a vague concept. And vague concepts bear little fruit in our lives, ultimately, um, if we don't know how to understand and flesh that out. So I'm hopeful that as the Lord has been kind of connecting a lot of these dots for me this year, it would encourage you as you continue to persevere in your own life um, and apply that. So I kind of want to just read over the disciplines and then think about how walking by faith Um, can be implemented in in the midst of all of that. So discipline one is um, shepherding your heart worshipfully toward God through the word of God and the gospel. Um, Discipline two is to be concerned for those in your home and to minister to those in your home with a heart fixed on God and his word. And then um, similarly, to step out into the church and to every part of life and to shepherd others towards God and the gospel. Um, So how do we do that? Um, Kyle Frazee actually on Sunday um, quoted John Calvin, which was so helpful for me, um, where he said, faith is the practice of truth believed. Um, And so I'd like you all to turn to Hebrews 11 um, to kind of look at what scripture says about faith. Um, Hebrews 11 Um, Verse 1 says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And then if you drop down to verse 6, it says, And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, first of all, and that he is a rewarder of those that seek him. And then... The rest of the chapter of 11 in Hebrews just recounts actual people's lives and how in all their different circumstances they 
demonstrated faith in God. Um, And again, we are never commanded to emulate their specific life. We are commanded to emulate the faith that they have in God um, that then practices obedience in whatever their specific circumstance was. Um, Because then after that, in chapter 12 of Hebrews, it says, um, therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you may not grow weary and lose heart. Um, And in 1 Peter also, Jesus is put up as the example of what it looks like to entrust yourself to to the Father. Um, And obviously, you look at the life of Christ, and he endured quite a lot of difficulty and quite a lot of hard things. Um, And that was the path set by God in front of him. Um, And his response was perfect faith, like Kyle talked about on Sunday, um, to willingly entrust himself to the Lord and then to submit and to obey explicitly all that God commanded of him. And so he's put up as our ultimate example, too. And I think in the midst of that, we can be like, oh, but what about her life? Should I model that? Should I do things like that? Whatever. Um, and, and that was such the temptation of the apostles, too. You, um, you look in John 21, and uh, God, Jesus had just been talking to the apostles, and he was talking to Peter specifically, and he was telling him how he was going to die and how he was going to suffer as an apostle. And you can put yourself in Peter's sandals and be like, gosh, that's a real bummer. He's going to get crucified for his walk as an, as an apostle. And his first response is interesting. Um, Peter says, um, you know, seeing him, John, sitting there over there next to Jesus, he's all, and Lord, what about this man? You know, insinuating, is he going to suffer too? Is his life going to suck really badly? Is he going to be hung upside down on a cross? You know, and uh, Jesus' response to him is, if I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. And, um, and I just think that's such a helpful um, exhortation to us. Um, we're not supposed to sit around wondering what everyone else's life is supposed to look like and if ours is going to look like theirs or not. Um, our job is also to fix our eyes on Jesus and then to follow in whatever it is that he commands of us to do in our specifics. Um, And faith, also, we can kind of think of it as like, obviously, um, by faith we're justified, so that's like a a one-time thing, right? Like, I have faith in God, so therefore I receive salvation. Yay! Um, Which is true, but um, it's not actually just a one-time thing. Um, It says in Romans 1.17, but the righteous shall live by faith. Um, And the word live is an imperfect verb of progression. Uh, It's a single action and then suggests a process that carries into the future over time. Um, So to give kind of a condensed definition of faith, um, faith is believing everything that God says about himself 
and then entrusting yourself solely to him for all results, all effects, all consequences of your humble submission, and just do exactly and explicitly as he asks. True faith just believes God and obeys. Um, <clears throat> and in my dealing with a lot of sin in my own life, one of which being um, pride, is kind of how I started stumbling upon this whole issue of faith. Because weirdly, as I was kind of getting um, drugged through scripture to deal with my pride, um, I was kind of surprised to see that um, the putting on, after the putting off of pride, the putting on is not just humility, but is faith. Um, <clears throat> because Habakkuk 2.4 um, is the verse that Hebrews 1 quotes. So Habakkuk 2.4 says, Behold, as for the proud one, his soul is not right within him, but the righteous will live by faith. And I was kind of like struck by that. Why is that the contrast? Why is it pride versus faith? <clears throat> and the more that I thought about it, the more I realized the proud one trusts their own capacity, their own understanding, their own biased perspective. Um, <clears throat> and you probably all have this verse memorized by heart. Um, but Proverbs 3, 5, trust in the Lord with all your heart. And do not lean on your own understanding. Why? Why are we always called to shepherd our heart to the Lord? You know, not lean on our own heart, not lean on our own understanding. Because we are not omniscient. We cannot see all that God sees. Um, and so to rely on our own understanding, ultimately we are self-exalting. We are self-vindicating. We are completely biased by our own perspective. So <clears throat> to lean on our own understanding is an act of pride in thinking that we are omniscient. I am all wise, and that I'm not tainted by sin, <clears throat> right? And the verse goes on, but in all your ways, acknowledge him. Uh, acknowledge him means to consider, to recognize, and to appreciate God's claims of authority and the validity <clears throat> that he has to um, require trust and obedience. So in all of our ways, whatever it is that God has for us to do on a given day, the response that our soul should have to him is to say in our minds, he deserves whatever it is he asks. <clears throat> and then the sweet thing is it's not just like, yes, you must do these things, but he says after that, and he will make your path straight. So in case y'all are wondering, like, I just, especially after last time um, with Scott talking about um, how to find the will of God, right? Well, he's going to make our path straight. Suddenly, like, our lives are given direction and, and purposefulness as we just obey. Um, <clears throat> but this requires a fair amount of humility because it goes on. Scripture's so kind because he keeps giving us detail, right? It says in verse 7, um, Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. <clears throat> you cannot follow the Lord, willingly submit, or... Yeah, you cannot follow the Lord and willingly submit your heart and trust it to him if you're thinking that your thoughts and your perspectives are somehow wiser than his, right? Um, and faith presupposes and is dependent on a knowledge that we are personally weak. We are fallible. We do have limitation. 
And um, it's not just I'm sitting there resigned to this fact. Um, it's a proactive and a doing kind of goodness that um, God places in front of us, tasks and people to love and things to be doing. Um, and <clears throat> faith is an expression of courageous willingness to just face the next thing because he calls us to these things for his glory, right? <clears throat> so in our obedience, we are affirming with each step in our day that God is so good and so wise and so generous that he provides us both with tasks and then also the ability to do them <clears throat> when we ask him for the wisdom and the capacity to do it, right? Um, but, you know, you may be like me and you're like, ha, my faith is not strong enough. I don't know what I'm supposed to do. It's too hard, right? Um, and for sure, you cannot trust what you don't know. So if you don't keep in your mind and continue to cultivate in your mind an understanding of who God is, then the entrusting of your soul to a God you do not know is really hard, right? <clears throat> um, so the step one is that we must learn, and which is why our elders are so wise that they keep telling us to read your Bible all the time because you know the Lord because you read your Bible and he's so kind to reveal himself so that we can be anchored to the truth that he says about himself that we're not left wondering if God is going to be able to support us or to help us or to um, <clears throat> be sufficient right <clears throat> um, and then the second thing is we have to ask um, James says if you lack wisdom you should ask Right. So, uh, and Omri taught about that with prayer um, this year. So we just need to be asked that, asking the Lord that he would teach us about his character, um, that he would help us to see who he is in the word. And, um, and then our responsibility is to do whatever it is that God has revealed to us thus far. Um, <clears throat> we can entrust ourselves to him and then to just submit in the regular, daily, random things that he asks us to do. Right. And um, I think we need to say to ourselves, you know, Gretchen, what does God ask of me to do at this very moment? And then will I choose? Am I going to believe that my creator is rightly over me, that he wisely set my path, and he also set parameters around which my tasks and my life are guarded by, and that I will believe him when he says that it's good for me? Um, and then I just need to choose to obey, right? And <clears throat> anything less than that is... I've been learning is leaning on my own understanding. Um, and this takes practice, like a lot of practice. <laughs> and Hebrews is kind to talk about that too. Um, <clears throat> it says in um, chapter five of Hebrews, it says, but solid food is for the mature who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. So don't be discouraged if you feel like in some ways you're not doing a good job because this kind of thing takes a lot of practice, and it's over time that that is developed. Um, <clears throat> and then in Romans 15, this was a really encouraging verse to me, um, verses 4 to 6. It says, For whatever was written in earlier times <clears throat> was written for our instruction, that through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Those are two very interesting things that God connects together in that passage, I think. That through perseverance as the one thing and the encouragement of the scripture, you have hope. So it takes the coupling of both of those together 
for us to walk with hope. And then after that, it says, now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another, according to Christ Jesus, that with one accord, you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Um, So I just would encourage you as I feel like so sad Wellspring is coming to an end, um, that you would continue to just put in the effort that it takes to walk with the Lord um, because you can trust God when he says um, that as you do these things that you will have hope. Um, And I'm super thankful for Cameron coming and teaching on these women in scripture. And I would just encourage you as you're thinking about all these different women um, that you would remember that your aim is not to be Mary or Ruth or Lydia or even your small group leader's wife, right? Our aim is to have these as an instruction for us of what walking by faith looks like. Um, But then we need to submit to our own husband and love our own children, right? And keep our own home with diligence, um, folding your laundry, making your dinner, you know, whatever it is. Um, And then God so sweetly blesses us with the fact that all of us, as we're working in our own little realm, doing what it is that God calls us to, the whole body is fitted together and building each other up, which is just such a sweet thing. God doesn't just call us to do these things without also so kindly giving us tons of great blessing and um, encouragement in the midst of it. So um, anyway, I'm just so thankful and (laughs) thankful for Cameron. Yeah. Every time that Gretchen speaks, it just makes my heart so happy. It's like uh, she just says things that are true. She just knows God's word. And so thank you so much, Gretchen. I'm, I'm not even in Wellspring this year. Um, and, and it's such a privilege and joy just to be here even one morning and just to see God's grace on display um, in the lives of his people. So um, will you pray with me as we get started? Are, you, are we out at 1030? Sorry. Okay. Um, Father, we are so thankful that you have revealed yourself in your word. Truth after truth after truth about your character, your promises um, that are an anchor for our soul, for for everyone who who holds on to that, Lord. It never moves. It never changes. Though all of our circumstances might shake and fall down around us, Lord, your truth never does. And we just thank you for the examples that you have laid out in scripture about what it looks like to to hold on to those truths, Lord, to trust those truths um, and to have faith by your grace. I pray that as we look at these women in scripture, that our lives would be impacted by them, that the, that these women would be impacted, that these women in this room would be impacted by these women on these pages um, in the same and different ways that I have been, Lord, that ultimately you would be glorified by us seeing what a life lived by faith looks like. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. So we are going to be uh, looking at a survey of women in the Bible, and I so appreciate Gretchen's disciplines just about how the goal is not to emulate their specific circumstances or what faith looks like in, in their lives. It is to and it is to see the principles and, and, and the way they held to those principles, those biblical principles of a godly woman, and to emulate those things. So uh, what qualities does God see as most valuable in a godly woman? 
Is it drive or ambition or accomplishing something great? Uh, we'll, we'll be serving the six women from the Bible today, and though they span thousands of years and they come from a variety of different backgrounds, they do have something in common, and it is not their drive, and it is not their ambition. Sarah was not known for being the first woman before 25 to become a millionaire, and Ruth did not have a million followers on Instagram. Um, what these women had in common were their hearts before the Lord. It was their gentle and quiet spirits. And that word gentle, as we'll see, it means it can be translated as meek. It's not just gentle. Um, it's meekness. And in this culture, that word meekness is not a popular idea. It's actually something, meekness in a woman is something to be despised sometimes. It means weakness or insecurity. But the biblical definition of meekness is, is the opposite. So one definition is that biblical meekness is not weakness, but rather refers to exercising God's strength under his control. Meekness is actually having strength and keeping it under control, voluntarily submitting to something else. And that's the call to every believer. Meekness is, is, is an attribute every believer should have, not just women. Numbers 12.3 tells us that Moses was the meekest man on the earth, and that was a good thing. And ultimately, as believers, we're marked by meekness because Christ was marked by meekness. Matthew 11.29, he said, I am meek and lowly in heart. That's who he is. That's who our God is. He trusted his father perfectly. Gretchen mentioned um, 1 Peter 2.23 about how he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He trusted his father perfectly. And these women were not flashy. Their deeds were not world-renowned. But God saw their hearts, and these women are in the pages of Scripture because of their gentle and quiet spirits, because their lives weren't about them. They were about God. They were meek. They trusted in the Lord instead of themselves. Or in some cases, they faltered and they stumbled and they trusted in themselves. And we see that example of that in scripture as well. The, the consequences and the tragedy that results from trusting in ourselves. So I want to look at um, lessons. We want to look at lessons that we learned from each of these women. Lessons in what meekness looks like, what it, what it doesn't look like, um, what a gentle and quiet spirit looks lived like. And like Gretchen said earlier, we want to emulate their faith, not necessarily the specific details of their lives. So first, if you want to turn to Genesis chapter 1, if you need help finding it, just ask your neighbor. Genesis chapter 1, we're going to look at Eve, quite literally the first woman. The first thing we learn from the life of Eve, the first point on your outline, is that God's design for Eve was good. God's design for Eve was good. God designed Eve first as a, as a woman, as an equally made image bearer of him. Genesis 1.27 says, um, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So Adam and Eve were created differently. They were male and female, but they were created equally in the image of God. They were both equally blessed by God. They were equally commanded by God. They were both equally given dominion over the earth by God. They both had equal moral responsibility before God to keep his commandments and both receive consequences, disastrous consequences, when they break his commandments. Both are freely offered the hope of, of the coming Messiah in Genesis 3.15, as we'll see. So God designed Eve as an equally made, equally blessed, equally responsible person made in his image. 
But while Eve was equal with Adam, she was designed to be different from him. In Genesis 2:18, we read that the first thing that was not good in God's creation is that Eve was not in it. It says, uh, then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. And literally in the Hebrew, that term helper fit it can mean corresponding to. It literally means according, I will make him a helper according to the opposite of him. Eve was created to be different physically and emotionally so that she could supply what Adam was lacking alone. Those differences were good. And this is the first marriage. Genesis 2.24 says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So Eve, by design, she was created to have a different role than Adam in marriage. And we see this in just the order of creation. The New Testament talks about this as well. Adam was created first and then Eve. God designed man to be the head of the marriage relationship, the authority in that way. And the woman was created and designed to be his helper, to submit to that authority, not the other way around. We see these roles further fleshed out in Ephesians 5. God's design for Eve as a woman and, and as a wife was good. The second thing we learn from the life of Eve is, I gave so many blanks on some of these things, is the nature of sin and the susceptibility of our own hearts to it. Susceptibility is such a fun word to spell, if you can figure out how to spell that. The second thing we learn from the life of Eve is the nature of sin and the susceptibility of our own hearts to it. In Genesis 2.16, God gave one restriction to Adam and Eve. He said, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. God had given so much to Adam and Eve. I mean, it, the language, if you look at it, the word every is used often in Genesis 2. I've given you every plant yielding seed. You can reign over all the earth, reign over every living thing that moves on the earth. He had given them a perfect marriage with no quarreling, no insecurities. What good thing had God withheld from Eve at this point? But in Genesis 3, Satan comes along in the form of a serpent to question that. So read with me in Genesis 3, starting uh, halfway through verse 1. Satan, in the form of a serpent, says, Did God actually say... You shall not eat of any tree in the garden. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And if you skip down to verse 13, when God questions Eve about what happened, this is what she says, and she's not wrong. The Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. Satan deceived Eve. And to deceive means to cause to accept as true or valid what is false or invalid. Satan casually asked her, did God actually say you couldn't even eat of any tree in the garden? And he questions God's words and he draws attention not to the abundance of provision that the Lord had given Eve, but to the one thing he hadn't given her. 
He tempts Eve not only to question God's commands, but the character from which those commands are issued. He's saying, oh, God knows that something good will happen if you eat this fruit. He's withholding something from you, Eve. And then he flatly denies God's word. You will not surely die. Satan promised Eve that she wouldn't die, but these were all lies because she did. He promised that she would be made like God, but she became like Satan mistrusting God, doubting his word, and that's the nature of sin. It is deceitful. It pits God's promises against the promises of Satan or the world or our own hearts. So in this moment, Eve stopped trusting God, and she started trusting her own judgment, her own assessment of the situation. She eats the fruit, and the entire human race was plunged into sin. John Piper says, Satan did not cause the fall of all mankind through terrifying apparitions or demonic possession. He appealed to their innermost desires and deceived them with a simple lie. And the deception was just this. God cannot be trusted to meet your needs and satisfy you. Sin never comes to us with a black flag. It comes to us with a halo as a friend. Pits God's words against the lies of our own hearts. And in that moment, what do we trust? Very quickly, Eve's sin spread to her household. Uh, We talk about this in Wellspring. Um, She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. These were unfallen people in Genesis 3, and they were susceptible to being deceived by sin. How much more ourselves when our heart is deceitful above all things, as we learn about in Jeremiah 17.9. So what do we learn from the life of Eve? Well, God's design for the roles and oneness of marriage is good, Husbands are created to be the head of that relationship and wives to be their helper. Do you love this design for marriage? Are you cultivating a love to be your husband's helper, to supply what he lacks in the ways that God has designed you to be different from him and to submit to him? Because that's a good design. It's ultimately a picture of Christ in the church, as we learn in Ephesians 5. And we also learned that there's, there's a reason that Satan approached Eve and not Adam in the garden. There's a susceptibility in us as women to be deceived. And we, we have to be on our guard against this. We have to beware of questioning God's words or his motives in our hearts. To beware of, of trusting our own assessment of situations. We have to be constantly going back to God's words and trusting these over against the words of our own hearts or the world. I've been personally most impacted by Eve. I've been impacted by all of these women. Um, but really in just knowing how deceitful my own heart can be, how, how, how vigilant I have to be all of the time against the deceitfulness that comes from my own heart. See, temptation to Eve had to come from outside of her because she wasn't fallen. But temptation for me, it just comes from inside of me. I, mean, I can tell myself lies in, in a matter of, of a few seconds and, and fall into sin, sometimes grievous sin. There was still hope on this day in the midst of all the curses that God gives as a result of the fall in Genesis 3.15. There's something called the Proto-Evangelion, which is some, it's the first gospel. Um, and, and the promise in Genesis 3.15 is that someday someone is going to come, one of Eve's own offspring, literally her own seed, a Messiah will come to crush the head of that snake, to crush Satan though Satan would bruise his heel. We know that that is Jesus. But that promise was first made here in Genesis 3.15. Created sinless and perfect, Eve was the only woman to be born meek, 
to be born with a gentle and quiet spirit, but in listening to lies and allowing herself to be deceived and questioning the word of God, we see the loss of that meekness, the loss of that gentle and quiet spirit. Eve trusts her own judgment instead of God's. She asserts her own authority instead of getting under God's. So God's design for us as women is good and, and the nature of sin is deceitful and we're susceptible to it. Secondly, let's turn in our Bibles to Genesis chapter 11, just a few chapters over. We'll turn our attention to Sarah. Sarah is well known as being the wife of Abraham. She is 65 years old when we meet her, which even by those standards in that day, she would have been an older woman. And she was beautiful, even at 65, even at 75 years old. Abraham was afraid of kings taking Sarah to be their wife because of her beauty. Read with me how scripture introduces Sarah in Genesis 11, starting in verse 29. It says, And Abraham and Nahor took wives. The name of Abraham's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarai was barren. She had no child. Sarah was barren. She couldn't have kids. And really, it, 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 it overemphasizes this. It says Sarah was barren, which could have been enough, but she had no child. And this statement sums up the first 65 years of Sarah's life, uh, sums up what would have been a source of constant heartache for her every day, so long as she was married. God had made Abraham a promise in Genesis chapter 12, just right after this, God makes Abraham a promise. He says in Genesis 12 too, I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. What a hope there would have been in Sarah's heart on this day who was barren, that she would have a child. In Genesis 15, the Lord repeats the promise and says that Abraham's descendants would outnumber the stars. But God doesn't fulfill this promise right away. He gives this promise. But 10 years go by, and they still haven't had a child. Sarah is still barren. And talk about feeling as though the Lord is withholding something good from you. I mean, how about the fulfillment of his promise for children through whom all the nations would be blessed? And so we see first about Sarah on your outline that when it was most difficult, Sarah did not wait on God. When it was most difficult, Sarah did not wait on God. Turn a few chapters over to Genesis 16, and we will see this in action, starting in verse 1. Genesis 16, verse 1 says, Now Sarai, Abraham's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abraham, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant, and maybe that I shall obtain children by her. And Abraham listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abraham had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abraham's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abraham, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. The joy that Sarah likely had at first when Abraham was given that promise over time gave way to impatience give way to a trusting of herself, a lack of trust in God. And so, like Eve, Sarah trusts her own judgment. And notice that Sarah knew at this time who was in control of her barrenness. She says, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. But this didn't make it easier for her to wait. I mean, the cultural pressure alone back then to have kids might have been enough for Sarah to suggest this plan. But I'm sure the pressure of fulfilling God's promise also weighed heavily on her. 
I mean, Sarah could do a lot of things. She could follow her husband to a distant land, which she did. She could adapt to the life of a nomad. But Sarah could not make her body conceive a child. She could not. But listen, God gives us these could-nots on purpose. It was on purpose that Sarah could not. And he does this because our could-nots highlight in bright living color God's cans. When there is something we cannot do, it forces us to depend on the only one that can. God had made Sarah barren on purpose, and he had years go by without fulfilling his promise. For the same reason, he gave a promise to a 75-year-old man with no children. It was to put on display his power, his faithfulness, not theirs. Had Sarah grasped this truth, she would have spared herself and her household a lot of grief. Sarah's lack of trusting God in her own heart spilled over into her household, as it does with disastrous results. I mean, her plan was successful. Abraham bears a son with Hagar, but think, think what this would have highlighted. Think how much more pain this would have brought Sarah. See, up until that point, probably no one was exactly sure whether Abraham was the problem or Sarah. And here, Abraham has a child. And all of a sudden, it has been confirmed once and for all that it is Sarah. It is Sarah who is barren. Because of Sarah's lack of trust of God, Sarah's marriage is struggling. There's tension with Hagar. Sarah's struggling, all because she did not wait on God. But in his kindness, God doesn't make his promises dependent upon our faithfulness. Um, Thirteen additional years go by from this point. Still no children. And the situation is now impossible. Abraham is 99 years old. Now not even he can have a child. Sarah is now 90 years old. She's still barren. And it is now that Sarah hears that the next year she will have a son. And though she laughs at it at first, Sarah does believe this promise. Hebrews 11, 11 tells us that by faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. So a grand total of 25 years after God first makes the promise to Abraham, Sarah bears a son named Isaac. And God alone gets the glory for the fulfillment of that promise. Though Sarah had moments of trusting her own heart, um, point number two on your outline is that ultimately, Sarah is a model of a gentle and quiet spirit. Sarah is a model of a gentle and quiet spirit. Turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 3, a text I'm sure many of you are familiar with. In God's kindness, we are not defined by the lowest point of our faith. We are not defined by our worst mistakes. Rather than being defined by your lowest point, Sarah is upheld as a model of a godly woman. Read with me in 1 Peter chapter 3, starting in verse 3. It says, Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. Sarah is described as a holy woman who hoped in God, as an example of a woman who adorned herself with a gentle and quiet spirit. And that those, those qualities, gentle and quiet, again, that, that's the word gentle. That can also be translated as meek. Um, 
And one, one commentator says that, that meekness, this quality, it refers to one who is not overly impressed by a sense of one's self-importance and is gentle, humble, considerate, meek, and unassuming. So again, the connotation here is not weakness, but it is power under control. For the believer, it's willingly being under the sovereign hand of God and controlled by his spirit. It's a gentle spirit, and it's a quiet spirit. Trusting God is quiet. It is not complaining or muttering. or um, it, is, it is not an arms flailing or a fist shaking or a head hanging type of affair. It is marked, rather, by being at peace, though your circumstances are in havoc around you. In Philippians 4, 6, God promises that when we trust him with what we're anxious about, that the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, guards our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And Isaiah 26, similarly, verses 3 and 4 says, You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever, for the Lord God is an everlasting rock. So with the exception of Genesis 16, this was Sarah. She had a gentle and quiet spirit. She trusted the Lord. And we see this elsewhere. When the Lord commanded Abraham to leave Ur and go to a foreign country, he doesn't even know where he's going. Sarah follows him. And it would have been a very difficult journey. It would have been over 300 miles on foot, taken about six to seven weeks. And every time she said, Abraham, where are we going? He would have said, I don't know. And she was 65 years old. She had never been a nomad before. She'd grown up in the city. This would not have been easy. We don't hear a single word of complaint or resistance from Sarah. I don't know if any of you have ever had your husband ask you to follow him to a foreign land, but I have had that privilege. And our journey was not on foot. It was through five airplanes and a helicopter, but I don't like to fly, okay? We had four young children at the time, and I am positive I voiced more than one word of complaint. And my husband knew where we were going. Sarah had a gentle and quiet spirit. She also obeys without complaint when Abraham asks her to tell people that she is his sister when he's fearful of kings taking her to be their wives because of her beauty. And while lying isn't condoned there, Sarah's heart of submission towards her husband is her attitude towards him, her gentle and quiet spirit. So what do we learn from the life of Sarah? God withheld things from Sarah that she wanted desperately, but it was for a good purpose. It was better for her not to have those things at that time. Psalm 84.11 says, No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. So if there is something you think God is withholding from you, know that he never withholds something that is truly good for us. He has a good purpose in it, in his timing, and in what he does, in his ways. Are you trusting him with a gentle and quiet spirit? I've been personally impacted by Sarah um, I mean, really, there, there, um, I've been a widow now for almost six years, and, I ha- and it's just been recently in the last year that I've really struggled to wait on God also and his timing for my circumstances. And I have seen that same impatience in my own heart, and it has actually been helpful to then turn my eyes to Christ again, to have a gentle and quiet spirit and to trust God quietly and to wait on his good timing and to believe the promise that no good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. We'll turn to the book of Ruth, and we will move to the next lady on our list. Joshua Judges Ruth, that's what I always have to say. Joshua Judges Ruth. The book of Ruth takes place during the time of the Judges, 
which is a very dark time in Israel's history. Ruth was a Moabite, which historically was not a good thing. Moab was known for its rampant immorality. It was known for its idolatry. Part of the worship of one of its gods, Chemosh, was regularly involved child sacrifice. It was, a, it was an ugly, dark, pagan culture. Um, tensions between Moab and Israel in particular had always been bad. Moab had actually ruled over Israel for 18 years at one point. Moabite women had a terrible reputation in Israel because of their history together. Moab rejected God and his people so much that back in Deuteronomy 23, God pronounced a curse on Moab. He said, no Ammonite or Moabite shall enter the assembly of the Lord. Just period. Moabite people were shut out from God's assembly. They were shut out, as it were, from the redemption found in the God of Israel. And Ruth was a Moabite. So it would seem, according to Deuteronomy 23, that there was no hope for her to be redeemed, to be one of God's people. But God made an exception to this law in Isaiah 56, verse 3, where he said that any foreigner, any foreigner who joins himself to the Lord, he will not only accept, but he will make them joyful in his house. So the Moabite curse was in place forever, unless they turned to God, unless they joined themselves to his people from their hearts. The book of Ruth opens with a man named Elimelech and his wife Naomi and their two grown sons moving to Moab during a famine, a questionable choice. I feel like that is a questionable choice to move to Moab. Elimelech actually dies shortly after they get there. And quite possibly everything that happens in Moab is just the discipline of the Lord. But Elimelech dies shortly after getting there. Naomi chooses not only to stay in Moab as a widow, but to, to allow her two sons to marry Moabite women. Also, you know, technically just not a good idea because of their idolatry in that place. But in God's providence, one of these women was named Ruth. Naomi stays in Moab for a total of 10 years, during which time both of her sons also die. So it is at this point when she is a childless widow in complete poverty that Naomi decides to return to Bethlehem to find food. She urges her daughters-in-law to stay in Moab with their people and their gods to find another husband. It was difficult in those days for a widow to provide for themselves. And so one of her daughters-in-law goes back and stays in Moab, but it says Ruth clings to her. And here we see the first point on your outline with Ruth is that Ruth is first and most a story of redemption. Ruth is first and most a story of redemption. Read with me Ruth's response to Naomi when Naomi urges her to stay in Moab in chapter 1, verse 16. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. And may the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. So in saying this, Ruth is turning away from her idols of Moab to the living God, to the God of Israel, to the Lord. Ruth had lived with Naomi for ten years, and she knew enough about Naomi's God to want to turn to him. This is her, as a foreigner, joining herself to the Lord and to his people. There was nothing in it. There was very little incentive for Ruth to go back with Naomi. She would have been leaving her mother and father. We learn later she has a mother and a father still. She would have been leaving her mother and father, her homeland, to follow a poor widow herself as a widow to a land she did not know where she would be a foreigner with a terrible reputation. 
And as the younger of the two women, Ruth would have also been vowing to provide for Naomi. But by doing this, Ruth, a Moabite, found redemption in the Lord. The word redeemer or some form of the word redeemed is used for 20 times in this book. Naomi and Ruth return to Bethlehem and Ruth volunteers right away to provide food for the two of them by gleaning in the barley fields after the workers. This would have been hard, menial labor. This would have been the work of a servant. In chapter 2, verse 3, it says, So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz. And of course, there's a rhetorical emphasis here, because nothing in life just happens. Psalm 146.9 says, The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless. And this is him doing just that for Ruth and Naomi. See, Boaz was a relative of Naomi's husband. And there was a law in Israel called the kinsman redeemer. Basically, if an Israelite man died, his nearest single relation was, could marry his widow so that she was provided for and so that his name would be continued. John MacArthur sums up this custom as, as a relative that came to the rescue. That's what the kinsman redeemer law was. Of all the fields in Bethlehem, Ruth had happened upon the one field belonging to the one man who could lawfully redeem her. Boaz notices Ruth gleaning in his fields. He shows her extraordinary kindness, making sure that she is safe and able to gather plenty of food. And he says this to her, read with me in chapter 2, verse 11, when she asks him why he's been so kind. It says, but Boaz answered her, all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me and how you left your father and mother in your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Ruth, the Moabite, had come to the Lord, the God of Israel, to look for refuge under his wings, and she had found it. Boaz protects and provides for Ruth and Naomi in this way, all the way up until the end of wheat and barley season. And then Naomi tells Ruth to go down to the threshing floor. She has this plan. She tells her to go down to the threshing floor at the end of the season, to lay down at Boaz's feet while he's sleeping, and to say, as we see her say in 3.9, spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And this was an old custom by which a young woman could ask a man to marry her. Uh, Boaz accepts. I mean, the end of the story, it's a long thing. It's like, I only have two pages per woman. It's like, you can barely get into these women. But Boaz accepts, and they're married, and they live happily ever after. I don't know if they live happily ever after. But Boaz accepts, they're married, and they have a son together. So Ruth is a love story in that way, but it's first and most a story of redemption. And the second point on your outline is that Ruth was a woman marked by meekness. She was a woman marked by meekness. If being meek is someone who is not overly impressed by a sense of their self-importance, of someone who is gentle and humble, considerate of others, then Ruth is a textbook example. She goes with Naomi, knowing that she is the one who will care for the older widow. She volunteers to glean in the fields the work of a servant alongside other servants every day, the whole season. She does not complain. Twice, she refers to herself as a servant. This is how she sees herself. In 2.13, she says to Boaz, you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. She says the same thing um, when she asks her to marry him. Ruth did not willfully follow her own ambition. She submitted herself to the counsel of others. She was teachable. She was gentle. She did not seek after her own interests only, but after the interests of others. 
And when Boaz accepts her proposal, he says this in chapter 3, verse 11. He says, I will do for you all that you ask, for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. The Nazbi translates this as, a, as a, they, they know that you are a, a woman of excellence. And this is the same word, this word for worthy, used to describe the Proverbs 31 woman. There's actually a lot of overlap between Ruth and the Proverbs 31 woman. So this former idolater Moabite widow has turned from idols, and she's become a woman of excellence, a worthy woman. Ruth is not only an example of excellence in her hard work and care for others, but she's an example of meekness, having a gentle and quiet spirit. The book of Ruth ends with a genealogy. In Ruth 4, verse 21, talking about the son that Ruth and Boaz has, it says, they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. So Ruth was the great-grandmother of King David in the line of the Messiah. So what do we learn from the life of Ruth? Well, in 4.14, the women of Bethlehem celebrate with Naomi after Ruth gives birth by saying this, Blessed be Yahweh, who has not left you this day without a redeemer. And yes, Boaz redeemed Ruth, but ultimately it was the Lord, the God of Israel, who was truly her redeemer. That same Redeemer still lives to care for us today. He has not changed. Ruth desperately needed to be rescued and to be redeemed. And far from trying to make it on her own, to trust her own judgment, her own authority, she humbled herself and she sought refuge under the wings of of the Lord. And she found redemption there. And that was us. We were helpless. We were hopeless. And we needed a kinsman Redeemer And so Jesus, Hebrews 2.17 says, took on flesh and blood. He became our brother, our kinsman. Why? So he could live the perfect life that we couldn't live and to become our sin on the cross, to rescue us, to redeem us. Jesus is our relative who came to our rescue at an infinitely higher cost than Boaz. Go to Luke chapter 1, and we will look at the next lady on our list. We will look at Mary. I named one of my children after this person in the Bible. because of what we will learn about her today. The Messiah had been promised since Genesis 3, and in Luke 1, he's about to finally come into the world. In the region of Galilee, in the small city of Nazareth, which was of next to no importance, there lived a young girl named Mary. So read with me Luke in chapter 1, starting in verse 26. It says, In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel, and this is in the sixth month of Mary's cousin Elizabeth's pregnancy, but in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. Mary was likely around 13 or 14 years old at this time. She She was just a very ordinary girl. She was betrothed. She was legally engaged to a man named Joseph of the line of David which was the line that the Messiah would come through. And we see first about Mary that in the face of life-changing news, Mary was quick to respond with humble submission. Mary was quick to respond with humble submission. So the angel Gabriel is sent to this teenage girl, and he declares this to her in Luke 1, starting in verse 30, after he greets her and, and says that she is favored. He says this in verse 30, The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, 
You will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. So look at the first thought in Mary's mind. It was not the public ridicule that she's thinking about if she were to become pregnant while engaged to Joseph. And it wasn't to doubt what the angel said. She says in verse 34, How will this be since I am a virgin? And she isn't asking this out of unbelief. She's asking it out of confusion, like literally, how will this be since I am a virgin? And this is in contrast to to other people in the Bible who received the same news from the Lord. When Sarah laughed in disbelief at the news that she, who was barren and 90 years old, would bear a child. And earlier in the same chapter, Zechariah disbelieved the news from the same angel that he and his wife Elizabeth would bear a child in their old age. But not Mary. As young as she was, Mary believes Gabriel. And a few verses later, Mary's cousin Elizabeth testifies that she believed it. And she's filled with the Holy Spirit. And Elizabeth declares, Blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. So Mary asks how, not in unbelief, but literally, how can this happen? And Gabriel answers in verse 35, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. So Mary hears that she will be the mother of the, of the Messiah and that this child will be born of the Holy Spirit while she's still a virgin, and she has no further questions. Read with me in Luke 1, verse 38. Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. So no doubt Mary comprehended the difficulties that lay before her with this news. I mean, what would Joseph say? What would her parents say? What would the whole town of Nazareth say? But there's no questioning. There's no complaining. She responded with humble submission. Let it be to me according to your word. She's marked by meekness. She doesn't demand an explanation. She doesn't think of herself so highly as that. She actually calls herself the servant of the Lord. And that word there is doulos. It's actually the word for slave. She is content to leave the particulars um, to her master and simply carry out what is asked of her. She submits to the word of God. Secondly, on your outline, we see that Mary was able to respond to this with joy. There are so many blanks on this one. With joy because of her knowledge and trust of God's character and his word. She was able to respond to this with joy because of her knowledge and trust of God's character and his word. In these circumstances, Mary's filled of all things with joy. And we know this because she breaks out into a song of praise. Read with me, starting in verse 46. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed, for he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name, and his mercy is for those who fear him. She goes on to talk about how he... He, bring, he has power and is mighty to bring down the mighty and exalt the humble. Mary knew God's character. Just look at the attributes she proclaims in these verses. And remember, she's, she's only 13 or 14 at this time. She knows that God is, is her Savior in verse 47. She knows that he is mighty in verse 49. She knows he is holy, merciful, strong. He's able to throw down the proud and exalt the humble. Mary knew the character of God, and she trusted the character of God. None of this was bad news for Mary. She rejoices in his ways. She calls herself blessed 
She says, he who is mighty has done great things for me. She's not fearful or anxious. She's not muttering or complaining. She's filled with joy. She praises the character of her God. Mary knew God's character, and she also knew God's word. And this text is filled with allusions to Old Testament passages, proving that Mary knew her Old Testament Bible very well. There are similarities, lots of similarities and overlap here to Hannah's prayer in 1 Samuel chapter 2. Mary sings about this, the same themes here that are declared throughout the Psalms, throughout the book of Isaiah. She rejoices in the same messianic hope her ancestors did in verse 54. When circumstances squeezed Mary, this was what came out. Deep, rich truths about God's character and the faithfulness of his word. She didn't just know these things. She actually trusted these things. Mary could respond to such life-changing news with humble submission because she knew who her God was, and she trusted him. He had power to do anything. Of course, he could make a virgin conceive his one and only son through the Holy Spirit. Mary already believed that nothing was impossible with God long before Gabriel told her that this was the case in verse 37. Mary had been reading her Bible and believing it for a long time. So the day when God brought something wonderful and difficult into her life, she didn't have to wrestle with him about it. She didn't have to ask any questions. She had only to submit to it humbly. So is this us? Do we see ourselves as the servant of the Lord when he decrees certain things for our life, when he brings circumstances into our life that could be uncertain or have difficult consequences or ramifications? Do we know our Bibles as well as Mary did so that when circumstances like that come, what comes out of us is actually a scripture-saturated song of praise? Is that how we respond to these things? If you flip in your Bible to the next chapter, Luke chapter 2, we will meet Anna. We are going to turn the corner from young Mary, and we will talk about older Anna. Mary has just given birth to Jesus Christ. Luke 3.15 tells us that at the time Jesus was born, all the people were in expectation looking for the Messiah. But though people were in expectation and looking, very few recognized him the way he came. And Anna was one of these precious few. All that we know about this lady is contained in three verses. Read with me the first two of these in Luke 2, starting in verse 36 says, And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. So the first thing we see is that Anna used her position for worship. Anna used her position for worship. We read... The first thing that scripture tells us here is that she was a prophetess. Um, this means that she had the gift of, of prophecy. We read about um, a handful of women in scripture like Miriam and Deborah in the Old Testament. Philip the Evangelist daughters in Acts 21.9 um, are called um, prophetesses. Um, R.C. Sproul says that this was a woman gifted to speak the word of God to her people. She was of the tribe of Asher and she was advanced in years. So... She had been married, likely, when she was around Mary's age, for seven years before her husband died and she became a widow. And then there's some ambiguity. Nobody really knows how old Anna is in this text. She's either, either she's 84 years old total, or she had been a widow for 84 years, so likely she's uh, 104. So either way, Anna had been a widow for a long time and she was old. Or, she was older. 
She's older. 84, 104. And she was a widow, but she didn't let these circumstances deter her from worship. This was her position. These were her circumstances that the Lord had given her. But she used her position of widowhood, her position of singleness in that respect, for worship. It says she did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. Anna likely had spent so much time at temple. She was always there speaking God's word to people, worshiping, that she was actually given lodgings on the temple grounds. Anna was likely widowed when she was young. She could have used her position for many things. She could have remarried, but all she wanted to do was worship, to serve the Lord. She didn't run after her own ambition, her own glory. She was only interested in God's. She was meek. She fasted. She prayed. She served others. She didn't desire to depart from the Lord's house, from his, from being with his people. Anna used her position for worship. And secondly, we see that Anna recognized the Messiah because she was waiting for him. She recognized the Messiah because she was waiting for him. Why was Anna fasting and praying night and day? What was she fasting and praying for? It was, it was the Messiah. She was waiting for him. She was looking for him. And the next verse tells us that there were others like her who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Anna knew that the Messiah was coming, and she was looking for him to come until she came. She had been fasting and praying like this, the text suggests for either 64 years or 84 years, either way, a long time. And God, in his manifold kindness, let her see that which she had been praying and fasting for. Anna's in the temple as she's always been, and Mary and Joseph bring Jesus into the temple to make their sacrifices as was required in the Old Testament. They're first approached by a man named Simeon, who declares in the Holy Spirit when he sees Jesus that this is the Messiah, this is him. And Anna comes up just as this is happening. Read with me the next verse, Luke 2, 38. It says, And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. After years of fasting and praying, Anna gets to see the Messiah with her own eyes. She recognized him because she was waiting for him. She was longing for him. And she doesn't just recognize him. She wasn't an island of worship. She wasn't the dead sea of devotion being poured into and, and never pouring out. She was this rushing river where God's word collected in her and spilled out of her through prophecy and encouragement to others. So upon hearing this good news and seeing the Messiah, Anna immediately gives thanks to God and she begins speaking of Jesus to those around her. And these verbs for giving thanks and speaking, they're both in the imperfect. She was continually doing these things. Long before Peter or Paul, this elderly, devoted widow, she was a witness to Jesus Christ. So what do we learn from the life of Anna? God had placed her in a position of, of widowhood, of singleness. She used it to worship him, to serve him with her whole life. What position does the Lord have you in? Are you using it for him? Are you single or married? Are you a widow? Are you using the station of life the Lord has you in for worship? Does God's word spill out of you to people around you? And as Anna was waiting and longing for the Messiah to come, are we like Anna in that way? Titus 2.11 tells us that the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation, training us to live godly lives as we are waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Are we waiting for him to come back? Are we looking for him to come back? The last woman on our list is Lydia. If you'll turn with me one book over, no, two books over to Acts 16. Acts chapter 16. Paul is with Silas and Timothy and Luke on his second missionary journey. We're going to go through this a little bit quicker. 
or I'm going to try to go through this a little bit quicker. The journey of, of this missionary journey has been um, a little bit bumpy. The Holy Spirit has forbidden them from going to Asia. Um, the Spirit of Jesus doesn't allow them to go somewhere else. But in Acts 16, verse 9, um, Paul is given a vision of a Macedonian man saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. Uh, and this is significant because Macedonia was in Europe and the gospel had not gone to Europe yet. So read with me Acts 16, verse 11, starting in verse 11. It says, um, actually starting in verse 12, so they make it to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remain in this city some days, and on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. So the first main city they come to is Philippi, which was a busy, thriving center of trade. It was a Roman colony. And Paul's custom was always to go to the synagogue, but in this place, there is no synagogue. They didn't have the 10 required Jewish men to have a synagogue. So he hears about this place of prayer by the river. He goes outside to preach the gospel, and it says, we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. So there were no men there, and Paul must have been a little bit confused because he had been given specifically a vision of a Macedonian man asking for them to come over. And there he is with women. But he preaches the same gospel to them. And here is where we see the first point on your outline about Lydia, that God positioned Lydia exactly where she needed to be to hear and believe the gospel. God positioned Lydia where she needed to be to hear and believe the gospel. Read with me Acts 16, the first part of verse 14. It says, One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. So Lydia was from the city of Thyatira, which is ironically in the same province of Asia where Paul had been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak. And Thyatira was famous for its highly sought-after purple dye. It was extremely rare because of how difficult and expensive it would be. They had to like, poke a snail and get out like two drops of this liquid. So really only royalty wore this color. It was a very um, wealthy business, and Lydia was a seller of purple goods. So she was wealthy, uh, she likely had her own business, she had her own household, and it says she was a worshiper of God. So either she was an Old Testament believer, or maybe she just knew the God of Israel intellectually, but either way, God had positioned Lydia in this place to hear the gospel, because if she had been back home in her city in Thyatira, she would not have heard it. And read with me the second half of verse 14, it says, The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. It was the Lord who gave Lydia ears to hear. This is always how it is. Ephesians 2 tells us we're dead spiritually, right? We have hearts of stone. God has to make our hearts alive and give us hearts of flesh. The agent at work here, more than Lydia or Paul, is the Lord. God positioned Lydia exactly where she needed to be. She heard the gospel. She believed it. She put her faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of her sins. She was where she needed to be. And the second thing we see about Lydia is that she was quick to use her resources to serve the church. She used her resources to serve the church. So immediately after being saved, Lydia is baptized. Verse 15 says, And after she was baptized in her household as well, again, Lydia's heart spills over to her household in a good way this time. And with her own heart turned to Christ and her household directed there likewise, Lydia moves into ministry. Read with me the last verse, Acts 15, 16, verse 15. And after she was baptized in her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. So this wouldn't have been a small offer of hospitality. I mean, again, she would have been offering to provide room and board for Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke. There were probably others with them. She was going, um, I mean, she, but she had means. God had given her resources. 
And her first thought was to use them for the Lord, to use them for it, to bless his people. She might have also, I mean, she likely also would have cost, um, faced other costs other than material costs. I mean, Paul and Silas are beaten and thrown in jail in the very next section here in Philippi. So this could have cost Lydia in terms of her business. Even her life could have been at stake. And yet she wasn't just hospitable. She was persistently hospitable. It says that she prevailed upon us. Lydia was, was marked again by wanting to serve the church, having the meekness of a servant's heart. So what do we learn from the life of Lydia? We have this beautiful picture of her of all three disciplines. We see her heart changed by the gospel, which then impacted the lives in her household, which then turned to ministry right within our own home. Do we use the, our homes and the resources that God has provided for us for ministry, to bless others, to serve the church? We also see God's kindness and salvation to Lydia, right? I mean, he brings Paul over to the country of Europe for the first time, and the person he has him speak with is a Gentile businesswoman who wasn't even from that place. And if you are here and you're a believer, this is what he did with each one of us. He positioned us exactly where we needed to be to hear and believe the gospel. And then how could we, who have received such kindness from him, not turn to others and open our homes and our hands to bless people and his church through hospitality. There are people in this church that do that so well, who regularly open their homes and have other families living with them. That's what the Frazies are doing with the Miles right now as they prepare to plant a church in New Orleans. And I've seen this church do this over and over and over again, even with my family. So to close, these are women. And again, we, as, as Gretchen said at the beginning, we're not called to emulate the exact details of their life, right? But we want to look at their faith. We want to look at their gentle and quiet spirits, their meekness. And we want to see how we can do that in our own lives with the circumstances God has given to us. I think frequently that I want to be like these women. I want to be, I want to learn from Eve about how to be on guard against my sin. I want to have a gentle and quiet spirit like Sarah was so much of the time. I want to be meek like Ruth. I want to know God's word like Mary and be quick to believe it and trust it. I want to worship and pray like Anna. For as long as the Lord has me on this earth, I want to be quick to serve and use my resources like Lydia. And it would look different in my life to do that. It would look different in your life to do those things. Um, but these are the same things that we want to emulate. These women believed the truth that was set before them. Are we doing that same thing? Let's pray. Father, we do thank you again for this time. We thank you for these examples in Scripture sometimes have of great examples to follow and emulate and sometimes of warnings to us of what not to follow what not to emulate lord we are just grateful that um, your word is living and active and that we can uh, trust it more than ourselves because lord our own hearts are deceitful but we can look to your word and see what is what is good and right and true i just pray that we would know and believe that no good thing do you withhold from those who walk uprightly lord um, that we would want to trust you in the ways that these women trusted you, serve in the ways these women served. It'll look different, Lord, but that we would want to have the same heart as they did with a gentle and quiet spirit. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.